0: And thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One, a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and environment. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson's science advisors first recognized the possibility that burning fossil fuels could increase the Earth's temperature. The solution? Rather than reducing greenhouse gases, Johnson's advisors discussed spreading particles on the ocean over 5 5 million square miles of ocean. The notion of such geoengineering lay dormant for four decades. Now it is a topic of increasing public debate. Today we welcome three experts to discuss geoengineering. Could it offer global salvation or global ruin? Please welcome today's panelists. Welcome. Uh, Let's start by defining the terms. What are the classes of activities that constitute geoengineering?
0: Geoengineering is generally regarded as intervention in the Earth's functioning intentionally at large scale and usually to reverse effects of greenhouse gas emissions. There are two main categories of geoengineering strategies. Some of them try to reverse the cause of the problem, accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. and these options seek to remove carbon dioxide and other gases from the atmosphere. The sun heats the earth, and then the radiation from that heat tries to get back to space, and so another way to try to prevent the earth from heating is by reflecting more sunlight back to space, and so another class of options seek to cool the earth by... Reflecting more sunlight back to space, say, by putting particles in the stratosphere or making clouds over the ocean wider. And these options tend to be much more
3: controversial.
1: Okay. Uh, David Whelan, how much of this is possible now, and what's the status of research into these things?
3: Um, I think it's all uh, very immature research at this point in terms of no one's really seriously looked at um, the full system implications of Doing any one of these approaches, um, I think the science is still emerging and uh, coming along. Um, I think the uh, the attention of industry to this is just starting to turn towards this um, internally you know at Boeing, for example, I have the um, charge of a small group that looks for future problems and future issues that face the country, and we 're just starting to try to understand the implications, understand the what are the, the the highest probability of success approaches? What are the ones that have uh, the most uh, best cost per benefit, if you will? And then what are the other uh, metrics that we really haven't thought through yet in terms of is there other uh, environmental impacts and things like that? So what are the complications uh, to those technologies? So although I think there's ways to accomplish, you know, for example, getting – Uh, some SO2 up to a certain altitude. Uh, There's ways to try to uh, increase the... uh, to pump moisture into the atmosphere to create uh, enhanced clouds. Um, I don't think we've really thought through the system engineering aspects of that Um, like we would before we were to fly an airplane, for example. We sort of work through all the illities, all the support issues, all the function issues, and before we actually... Embark on something. So I think it's uh,
2: still very immature.
1: So it's early days. There's several different ways to do this. Uh, Al Lin, who's watching over this? Who's governing this?
2: Right now there's uh, essentially no governing structure in place. There are a number of tools which uh, arguably could be used to try to govern geoengineering. Uh, but there 's no treaties that directly address it. Uh, there are options such as more general options, such as the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which uh, really is focused more on uh, stabilizing uh, greenhouse gas concentrations uh, to avoid anthropogenic interference that 's the uh, with the climate system and that 's the official objective of the Framework Convention. but you could certainly imagine that objective being expanded uh, to uh, cover geoengineering uh, techniques. And then there are more specific uh, treaties. Uh, for example, the London Convention and London Protocol govern uh, dumping of waste materials into the oceans, and that uh, could be used to govern specific uh, geoengineering techniques such as uh, ocean fertilization.
1: So let's talk about some scenarios where this might be used and talk some of, some of the risks and some of the, some of the benefits. Can give us some scenarios where this might be deployed.
0: Let me first give a little bit of my general perspective, in that I think we need to come to the realization that we can no longer use the atmosphere as a, for a waste dump for our product, waste products like carbon dioxide, and that we need to stop emitting CO2 to the atmosphere. But under every plausible emission scenario for this century, temperatures continue to increase. So... Emissions reduction can reduce rates of warming this century, but there is no reasonable way in which emission reductions can actually cause the Earth to start cooling this century. So what would we do if in year 2040 or 2060 there's a severe climate crisis, say widespread famines or Greenland sliding suddenly into the ocean, that the only plausible way in which we could start the earth cooling this century is to directly intervene in the climate system, say, by putting particles in the stratosphere. And this obviously raises all kinds of questions. It's hugely risky. Uh, It will likely negatively impact some people, but we might find ourselves in a situation where those risks seem worth taking.
1: So to clarify, even if we turned off all the power plants and stopped driving cars, the world would continue to get hotter, and at some point that might be unbearable, we might consider these these options.
0: If we got to zero emissions, that would be enough to stop the Earth from warming. But as long as we're emitting some carbon dioxide, there will be some warming, and the... Inertia in both our energy systems, our social systems, and in the climate system means that it's very likely that the Earth will continue warming throughout this century despite our best efforts to reduce emissions.
1: So this, we ought to pursue this as some kind of an insurance policy or in, in case we need it. I,
0: I see this as something like an evacuation plan, uh, you know, <laughs> that you, that you, uh, you know, build big dikes. Maybe that's the emissions reduction to try to keep the flood from wiping you out, but that if you should, that flood should come, that you'd like a plan uh, for, for what to do in the event of that catastrophe. So I see these options more as a catastrophic response option and not as a way to reduce risk of everyday climate change.
1: David Whalen. Some people have called uh, this planetary methadone. Is that apt?
3: Um, I think there is that question of uh, if I if I give you an insurance policy, do you now go out and take more risk because you're not uh, uh, as worried about some of the negative consequences? So I think there is that uh, human nature uh, trend that you have to be careful of. Having said that, uh, I just like uh, national defense is a hedge against. Um, uh, consequences that we wouldn't want to see another country invading or attacking us, I think you have to be prepared. And uh, I think understanding the science and the technology and the potential pros and cons and the costs and benefits of um, geoengineering is probably a prudent thing to do. It doesn't mean that you'll implement them, but it does mean that I have that, uh, if you will, arrow in my quiver, such that if I ever needed it, I'd have the ability to use it. And I think that's prudent. um, So...
1: Well, what about the case of, say, nuclear weapons? A lot, a lot of the, uh, the, some of the scientists who worked on nuclear weapons uh, wished l- later had regrets for, for their creation, and it's, in fact, is that a possibility that this research might lead to something that you might wish it didn't create?
3: Um, there's always that risk. Having said that, I don't think the scientists who believe that if it wasn't for them, nuclear weapons would have never been invented, I think, are, are being a little bit uh, naive, and that I think uh, eventually uh, nuclear weapons would have been uh, discovered by someone at some time, because I think it's you know it's the progress of human um, uh, I- you know intellectual curiosity uh, that we'll we do uh, try to understand these things and uh, we will invent those kind of things. So I don't think if we stop doing it here, my guess is other parts of China, uh, India, other countries might also then see it in their na- in their own national interest to. You know modify uh, China for example, was modifying uh, the weather locally f- you know, in China for months before the Olympics. Um, you know if there was any negative consequences to that downstream um, you know across the Pacific, uh, we probably would have objected to that and things like that so right now we just don't know the consequences of someone uh, putting more s o2 into the atmosphere and things like that. so I think understanding the consequences is almost just uh, good sound um, behavior.
1: It's better America than someone else?
3: No, I think it's more uh, I, I'd like to understand the consequences such so that if it does, or does start happening, I then know what I can do to counter it. So,
1: Ken Caldera, I heard a number recently that it was about $10 million nationally uh, research in this area. Is that right? Is that the scale we're talking about?
0: Right now there is no public program in this research area. There's some philanthropic money. There are some program managers, say, within NSF, the National Science Foundation, who are allocating some money to research in this area. But there's really no program. And so I think that $10 million is probably an exaggeration of how much money is actually going into
1: this area. And the Royal Society in the U.K., you were part of this group, recently called for $10 billion a year. Over, uh, for 10 years. So how is we going to scale up from virtually nothing to that? And, yeah. and I want to get to Al on, on the governance side of this.
0: I, I don't think the Royal Society called for that much. I, I did in, uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago calling for 1% of our climate change technology budget to go into geoengineering options. So I think that 99% of our effort should be on emissions reduction but that 1% of our effort should be on developing these options that we could deploy if our emissions reduction efforts prove insufficient.
1: So you agree we should increase funding?
0: I think we should increase funding. I, I do agree that there's a danger that uh, you know if you think you have a good evacuation plan, you might not put enough effort into building a good dike. And as we saw after Katrina, that people who thought they had an evacuation plan really didn't, and end up in a terrible situation. So I don't want to say that that even a research program is risk-free, but I think the likelihood that we can reduce environmental risk through these options is real. In our climate modeling, we see that by putting aerosols, at least in the models, that we can offset most climate change in most places, most of the time. And I think if we find that we're in a situation where people are really suffering, that we might decide that it's worth taking the risk that these options entail.
1: Al Lin, are we creating a moral hazard by even having this conversation or doing this research?
2: I think this is a serious question, right? Um, for years, uh, geoengineering wasn't Talked about in scientific circles or, or in serious policy discussions, because I think of this concern that even uh, talking about it would be uh, enough to uh, create this moral hazard. And I think the further we go down the road from raising the issue to perhaps doing research into it, I think we really do have to consider the moral hazard. That is, it's it's quite unusual that we would spend. You know, billions of dollars into researching a technology and developing it and then putting it on the shelf and simply deciding that we would never use it. Now, having said that... Nuclear weapons? They've been used. Only once. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I, you know, personally, I do think that the troubles we've had in terms of coming together in, ter- in, in trying to reduce emissions uh, does warrant... We're we're in serious enough trouble to look at at geoengineering seriously, but we also need to think about
1: it. Does tomorrow work seriously.
2: We should be looking at least it. at least <laughs> thinking about it, not necessarily doing doing it.
1: But your point is a good one. Is that if, I mean, why research something eventually? It's something it's going to get used somewhere by by someone.
2: Right. Um, right. I'm, I'm, what I'm, I'm suggesting sure. is that we can't simply ignore the issue. We can't simply bury our heads in the sand and pretend geoengineering isn't out there or that isn't something that uh, could uh, assist in uh, dealing with climate change.
1: Some people advocate to say that it's actually fast and cheap uh, and, and that the technology exists today. Ken Caldera, do you think that's true? I think
0: that if we wanted to, say, put sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere sometime in the next few years, that we could do it. The, it might be cheap to actually do it, but it's likely that some people will be damaged by doing that. And, and that damage could be many hundreds of billions of dollars, potentially. And, and lives. And, and lives. And, and so while it might be cheap to do, the consequences of it might not be cheap.
1: David Whalen, if Boeing wanted to do this today, there's talk about uh, retrofitting 747s. Uh, how close is the Boeing to being able to do this today? Um, this being disper- yeah. dispersed sulfur, sulfur uh, via airplanes in the atmosphere.
3: Yeah, no, I don't think anyone's thinking seriously about doing it, so I caveat that. Um, the, um, uh, I think there's a technical feasibility that if you wanted to lift so many megatons of CO2 up to a certain altitude, there's our, there are ways to do it ranging from aircraft to get it to 35,000 feet, to um, uh, large cannons to get it up to 150,000 feet, and as Ken says, it's a matter of what do you want to do, and you know. So there's ways to get it there, but I guess what I was referring to earlier is that we don't understand the the implications and the consequences, and so when you look at the risk benefits, we've not we don't we don't understand enough of the risk side of the equation, and I'd argue we're not even sure what the benefit sides are. There may be local benefits, there may be local negatives. So there's winners and losers. And so how do you account for that? And how, how do we test
1: that on something that, by definition, uh, to test it you have to do it on a global scale, and how do you test it without uh, incurring well, those risks?
3: Mother Nature has done this for us, whether we liked it or not. So when Mount Ponatubo erupted, it did spur uh, SO2 uh, into the atmosphere, and there was, Ken can probably talk much further in detail about that, but there was an experiment. So I think, you know, us as a nation being prepared to, at a minimum, Um, get ourselves prepared to do all the right instrumentation, all the right measurements, ask the right questions, that if Mother Nature does do another experiment, that we're at least collecting all the right data, asking the right questions, and uh, taking best advantage of whatever natural events occur. That's sort of at a minimum we ought to be doing that.
1: Should we mimic hurricanes?
3: The uh I don't think we should do
0: any of these things now. I think we need to learn more to understand what the risks are. The initial model simulations indicate that there's the potential for risk reduction. And I think if the environment was the only thing we had to worry about, I, I, I think from a purely environmental perspective, there, it's likely that these approaches will reduce risk. I think the question becomes when you introduce these into real social systems, uh, whether when, when it's embedded in a socio-political system of an armed world, whether it will really reduce overall risk. I mean, we can imagine a situation in which the tropics are heat-stressed from global warming and there's the threat of massive famines throughout the tropical world, and then you, uh, so you deploy a system like this in order to to make sure that the people living in the tropics can grow their food, and maybe, as a result of this, you weaken the the Indian monsoon, and as a result, uh, you cause the loss of life and famine in india and Now India is a nuclear armed nation, and now you you 've done an act that is you know threatening the livelihood and the well being of a nuclear armed nation and so whether you when you bring in all of those Uh, kind of military and socio-political feedbacks, whether you can really reduce risk in the real world uh, is a different question than whether you can reduce risk in a climate model.
1: If you came here for a little perk-up on a rainy night and came to the right place for a little uplifting uh, (laughs) pretty heavy stuff... Um, but let's, let's get to, to testing, you know, to, to drill a little bit on, on, on testing. And how can we really test these things? There, there are scenarios, but how can this really be tested at a meaningful scale? Natural events aside, um, how can human implementation be tested? And I want to get to how it should be governed.
0: I think you can test processes. So you you can test, you know, hardware of deployment that you can – if you're going to use artillery shells, you can test artillery shells. If you're trying to test uh, effects on stratospheric chemistry, you might be able to conduct small-scale tests where you alter the chemistry of some piece of the atmosphere and observe it closely – But it is true that you will never be able to really do a test to understand the global and regional climate consequences. What you can do is is slowly ramp up a system and try to tiptoe your way into it. The problem, of course, is that if we're faced with a catastrophe and that's what's influencing us to want to do this, then we don't get the chance of tiptoeing our way into it. And, And so... I think a real danger is that we don't research these options and then a catastrophe happens and then some political leader thinks these things will work and then just deploys them without doing the research first. And so if these options really don't work and really can't reduce risk, it's important that we do the research now and get these options off the table.
1: Alan, do you agree that we should start doing research now before waiting for a regime of of rules to guide or govern the research?
2: Well, I think there's several ways to try to go about trying to govern research, right? One possibility is to go through a formal treaty mechanism. Uh, another possibility would be to work more from a bottom-up type approach, relying more on, uh, let's say, the scientific research community to do uh, to develop norms. Um, and, you know, I think it's a little bit dangerous to rely too heavily on the bottom-up scientific community uh, norm approach alone um, because... Uh, these issues aren't just scientific issues, right? They're, they're political issues. They're ethical considerations. Uh, and so I think there needs to be some aspect of governance, even of the research, uh, uh, beyond just the scientists involved, but uh, also the, uh, the greater global community.
1: So scientists, there needs to be, scientists are not shouldn't be allowed to self-regulate or, or be, be their own police for their own research on this.
2: That's right. I mean, we have, a, we have some precedent uh, in, this, in that style of governance that is with respect to genetically modified organisms. Back in the 1970s, essentially, the scientific community got together uh, and developed guidelines, which the NIH uh, ultimately adopted, uh, and that eventually uh, served as the foundation for uh, the loose regulatory system we have today of, of genetically modified uh, organisms in agriculture. Um, And some might argue that that was a success in a sense. Um, um, But uh, if we consider um, many of the things that Ken talked about in terms of, well, this isn't just a scientific issue, right? But if you think about, well, there's there's military aspects, there's political aspects to it, uh, then uh, it seems appropriate that there ought to be uh, 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 non-scientific governance involved at the outset.
1: And and who should that be? Who, Who should be the cop on this?
2: Well, I mean, this is, this is a global problem, right? I mean, this is all has to be viewed within the context of a possible tool for dealing with climate change, um, whether as a backup emergency option if we really need it to deal with a crisis or uh, as, uh, as, as a more systematic uh, option among many for dealing with climate change. Um, and so uh, to me it seems appropriate that we ought to have uh, the international community involved uh, in governance. Uh, certainly the Framework Convention on Climate Change is, is a logical possibility for uh, doing so. Uh, there have been some criticisms, uh, and, and warrantedly, uh, in terms of the difficulty of, of reaching agreement uh, through that process. Um, but uh, we already have that mechanism in place. Uh, it's an uh, overall mechanism for dealing with climate change and governance of uh, geoengineering ought to be part of that. So
1: the U.N. would be the place you, you would start. How about did uh, you, David? Where would you think that the proper oversight of research should, should lie?
3: Um, I, I think you have to get all countries to buy into those constraints, much like uh, uh, the above-ground nuclear test treaty ban. Um, because I think, you know, if one country starts um, uh, experimenting without uh, the others, I think that will cause a collapse. So I think it does a, have to be a sort a, of a globe. So again? Would
1: that take a very long time? Pardon me.
3: It would, and so you know, it's, it's probably a good thing to get started on now because it probably will take a long time. Um, but I do think it needs to be sort of an international uh, kind of cre- uh, treaty that does tie and bind all nations into a common fate. It is a common fate. For us all. The Russians, the, US?
0: Have, the Russians have already done a small test in the lower atmosphere. Apparently they tested uh, some kind of sprayer and produced a sulfur plume lower in the atmosphere and then measured how it affected the light going through the plume. And so there's a real, uh, it's not a black and white issue. This is a small test within national boundaries that are not expected to have any trans boundary issues, but they are it was a test done towards developing a geoengineering system. Now, I think we can all agree that before anybody does anything in the stratosphere that would have transboundary, climatically detectable effects, we would like to have some kind of governance and regulation in place. And, and so I think the question is, how do you draw the line between some activity uh, that is allowed and doesn't need global governance and activities that do require global governance.
1: And then how about activities that are driven by, by a profit motive? Well, I, I think this question of
0: intent, uh, I was involved in uh, negotiations under the London Convention and London Protocol governing ocean fertilization, and one of the questions that came up is, does motive count, does your intent account count? That uh, you know, you can say, well, the Earth system just knows about physical action. So, so it knows about, say, putting a particle into the atmosphere somewhere. But you know, maybe I'm putting a particle into the atmosphere because I'm trying to make money, or maybe I'm putting a particle into the atmosphere because I'm engaging in scientific research and trying to understand cloud physics, or maybe I'm putting this particle into the, the atmosphere because I'm trying to make it rain. Uh, locally uh, to, to see the cloud and get more snow on our ski slopes. And so does, does the reason why I'm doing this matter? And I think this is a very difficult kind of question to get a consensus on because there's really no right or wrong answer. I can say with ocean fertilization that when scientists were putting iron into the ocean for pure scientific investigation, there was no problem. As soon as commercial organizations got involved, then people feared unregulated scale-up, and governments started clamping down on, on it in a way that started hampering the pure scientific investigation. And so finding ways to prevent uh, things that have risk of unregulated scale-up while allowing legitimate scientific research to go forward is a very thorny and difficult but important problem. So scale-up
3: is the key word there. You know, when it becomes where people are trying to scale it to large-scale, it has large-scale implications, uh, that's when people become concerned. I think small-scale experiments uh, are probably still a smart thing to do until we understand the, the physics, the chemistry, and the issues. So.
1: But, but, David, David William, um, of Boeing, I mean, Boeing would pursue this to make a profit, right? I mean, it's financial motivation to do this.
3: Um, let's see. So let me not speak for Boeing.
1: Is that allowed? Okay.
3: Yeah. Well, it is what it is. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I, again, I don't think uh, myself I, uh, a, a company would not go into this with such uh, such a controversial area. The negative con- uh, consequences for your own uh, corporate uh, reputation and name would would be uh, seriously, you know, uh, hindered. So, I'm not sure that. Uh, um, that would be uh, deemed as a, uh, a sole motivation. So, at least not for companies that I've worked for. No,
1: but if, but it's someday, if, if the U.S. is going to decide to do this stuff, uh, they're going to turn look to a company who can do it, and you want to be positioned. Boeing would rather be uh, get it than Lockheed Martin.
3: So so certainly uh, we have an industrial base that helps the country uh, take on technologies and uh, large-scale challenges like national defense. And uh, we do that both for a profit motive as well as, uh, um, I think, uh, as a national uh, service. So it has both sides to that.
1: Al Lynn of uh, UC Davis Law School, Uh, does intent and profit motives matter in, in the governance?
2: Well, I think we ought to be quite concerned when there are profit motives involved, right? I mean, one of the reasons to try to get governance structures in place early on is that, relatively speaking, um, there aren't um, strong lobbying interests uh, in terms of trying to get geoengineering or projects done uh, now. Um, but obviously, there's also interest uh, both in academia as well as uh, in, in the commercial side, uh, and, and contractors—not uh, just Boeing, but many—would uh, be interested in, in 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 profit. Certainly, may may not be the only motive, but certainly, that's if they're going to do their right by their shareholders, uh, profit is going to be an important piece of that.
0: Ken Keldier, I see the profit motive coming into this in a different way in that I think there are people who would like to see us allocate fewer resources towards emission reduction and see that, as a, uh, that see efforts to reduce emissions as threats to their profit and see investing in these geoengineering options as a way to help save their bottom line through weakening emissions
1: reduction options. Ken Calderas with the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution at Stanford University uh, we also have Albert Lin, professor at UC Davis School of Law, and David Whelan, chief scientist for Boeing Integrated Defense Systems. I'm Greg Dalton. We're discussing geoengineering at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. A question from the audience about whether uh, humanity is, is playing God by, by even contemplating these sorts of things. So who wants to tackle that?
0: Whether we like it or not, we are already <coughs> intervening in the Earth system at massive scales. We're already emitting sulfur into the lower atmosphere at a level that cools the Earth to an amount that's equivalent to about half of the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. And so if we stopped our current sulfur emissions to the atmosphere, the Earth would heat up quite rapidly and so and is that the, geoengineering yeah, and so the and so this is inadvertent through sulfur coming out of power plants today and so we're talking about putting a few percent of that sulfur in the stratosphere instead of the lower atmosphere and and so i think the difference is that the sulfur that we're emitting and the carbon dioxide that we're emitting, we know that we're changing our Earth's climate, <coughs> but it's a byproduct of other things that we're seeking to do. And what's new about geoengineering is saying we're not just going to change climate inadvertently and knowingly, because we all know that we're changing climate when we drive home tonight and CO2 comes out of our tailpipe, but it's a very different thing if you're, if you're driving home with the intent that you're, I'm going to drive, so I'm going to heat up the climate. And so that's, what's new here is the intention to alter climate. But we're all doing things every day that we know
3: affects climate. Let me emphasize what Ken said there. So he says that um, right now there's a certain amount of pollution in our cities, in China, and around the world. And the particulate matter uh, actually has a net cooling effect of about one degree uh, centigrade or so, something on that order. Closer to a degree Fahrenheit. But Fahrenheit, okay. okay. Um, and that we, if we start to improve and clean up our cities, we're going to um, make the global warming that much worse if we were to do that. So, so
1: environmentalism so, is bad. Uh, uh,
3: no, it's just that it has consequences. Ex- it ha- exacerbates because warming. Because of you know, the way we evolved. Uh, we have the, the, the net effect of the pollution has been actually to help have a net, uh, cooling effect. And the other carbon buildups has a net uh, heat capture effect, and so in balance you have this uh, equilibrium, and as you start to clean up the air, it's going to put even more pressure on the warming that's due to the carbon. So you're going to have to work even harder to get the carbon out to mitigate this additional effect.
2: Let me add a couple points on this. Um, I mean, I think that question highlights the fact that this ultimately becomes an ethical issue, right? Um, and that uh, I agree. No matter what we do, right? We are already uh, you know, engineering the earth, right? Mm-hmm. We've intentionally or not. Now, I think the question of intent is critical. Right? I mean, intent—you uh, know—I uh, you know, mean, criminal law intent is uh, critical to decim- deciding whether one ought to be convicted of murder or some lesser offense. Um, intent is critical here. I think in uh, figuring out well what exactly. Um, do we want? Uh, do we want to be living in, in a more natural world, right? Uh, or um, do we want to? Uh, uh, I think this relates to sort of the unintended consequences that can result um, from the acts that we do, um, and ultimately, uh, there's an issue here related to hubris. That is. Um, do we have the hubris to do these sorts of things, now we can do some research but ultimately there are always going to be unintended consequences, particularly when uh, the research that we do uh, we've talked about the difficulty of scaling up the research to actually uh, accurately determine what the effects are going to be.
1: You mentioned hubris, we had a question from the audience on that and another question from the audience is where is the appropriate place for science to find moral guidance? Ken? Ken? Well, I'm a big believer in
0: Hume, and think that science tells us about the way things are, but not what we ought to do, and that uh, science can tell us facts about the world, but it can't define our values. So I don't think that science—I don't think there's a science of morality, other than a science, maybe evolutionary biology, and it's like I, I think that. That it's up to our own set of values to you make proper decisions based on our
2: understanding of the facts.
1: And Alan from UC Davis Law School, are those values expressed in laws?
2: Well, certainly laws do express values. Um, I don't know if they necessarily reflect uh, in a fair way the values uh, of. Uh, all the persons who ought to be considered, um, but law uh, definitely is a reflection of uh, some of society's values
1: David Whalen of boeing where does what sort of factors do you look to for ethical guidance for research at Boeing?
3: Well, certainly for myself, I, I look at my own upbringing, my own uh, uh, beliefs, and I use that to you know my own moral compass, if you will, and that guides what i what I do and what I not do, and what I think is right, and what I think is wrong, and I think each scientist works within those within that context. I think uh, the larger question about um, do we want to limit uh, research on the uh, the physics and the chemistry of uh, the mechanisms that might have a positive impact or negative, we've got to understand the, the pros and cons there of that research. And if we try to do it at a societal level, uh, that has to be uh, done uh, where it's the the, the net um, culture of, of our country. And in this case, I think the problem is we, we what we do here could affect Europe, and what China does in China could affect us. And so it now becomes really a global, um, uh, global commons, if you will. How do we uh, as a global community, decide what is the, the right uh, moral and ethical proper thing to do. Ken,
0: Caldeira? I do think this is fundamentally a moral problem. One example is that it may be within our capability to help steer hurricanes. And if a hurricane like Katrina was running into New Orleans where it killed 1,800 people and we thought we could steer it away and have it land into a rural part of Mississippi where it might kill 100 people, that by doing this action we would be responsible for the death of 100 people who wouldn't have died otherwise, but we'd be reducing the overall amount of damage. Now also we might be wrong about our steering, and and if we didn't do the research right, maybe our steering would intensify Katrina and even kill more people in, in New Orleans. And so... This question of how do you develop the confidence to know that your intervention will reduce overall damage, and then how do you deal with the understanding that you might be damaging some people who wouldn't have been damaged before while saving people overall? And uh, these are extremely difficult questions, and I don't have the answers to them. I see my role as a scientist to develop the facts and understanding so that we can have some expectation of what might happen and some understanding of our uncertainty associated with those expectations. <clears throat> but I think that ultimately making that kind of moral calculus is, a, is something that society at large needs to
3: do. Let me, let me frame that as an even harder question. So let's say my research um, shows not an ability to steer hurricanes, but by early intervention out in the Atlantic, I'm able to reduce the severity of hurricanes. So one of the predictions or fears of as a climate warms, there'll be more extreme weather events, there might be more hurricanes. And so is it prudent for us to look at how do we limit the severity of extreme weather events? Um, because that's something that it, we can do. If we can do it, it matters today. In other words, it's it's a, a near-term impact. Uh, whereas uh, uh, moderating climate is something you won't see the impacts for, you know, 50, 100 years. It's a very long time constant. So if you could um, mitigate the intensity of a hurricane, and you would have... And and it might have a consequence. It doesn't. It maybe steers it as well, so you don't know that consequence because you did change the intensity. Um, Is that something that's worth doing, right, because it may prevent loss of life? And I think that's the kind of harder question that you have to also take into account.
1: David Whalen is the chief scientist at Boeing Integrated Defense Systems. We're discussing geoengineering at the Commonwealth Club. Another question from the audience, are our weather prediction models accurate enough to warrant trusting them for geoengineering? So weather we try to do, a lot of it's based on models. How good are those models?
3: Today, I think there's still a lot of variance, a lot of variability, and I think uh, some of the fundamental research has to try to nail that down. My understanding is, the most av- the 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 best predictor of all the codes is the average of all the codes. Sort of <laughs> sort of odd that no one code is uh, accurate in the, in any when you look across all the different metrics. Um, so that just shows you the I'd say the weak state of our uh, understanding. So I think there's a tremendous amount of more science and uh, development that needs to occur. Um, whenever we design and di- build models, the models is only as good as the in- intelligence that you put into it. And unless you test it, you really don't uh, account for the unknown unknowns. And so I think for building these models, we're going to come to the case, well, how do we validate the models? How do we do uh, testing and verification that the models are indeed accurate? And how do we do it at scale? Because this really is both a local scale and a global scale issue we're trying to track.
1: Can you How good are the models?
0: I think the models are good for understanding the kind of things that might happen. I think if you can run it in run the same simulations in many different models, you get a broader range of understanding of possible outcomes. I tend to believe this kind of global scale or maybe even you know what that the arctic is going to warm more than the equator under global warming. I don't believe models when they come down to the level of regional scale predictions. So this is a situation of risk management and decision making under uncertainty and we need to improve the models and improve the evaluation of those models but we will never know for certain what the outcomes of our actions are and so we will be in a situation where we need to act under uncertainty but that's the that's the way life is in general we're
1: constantly acting in a state of uncertainty. And science is a lot about probability and, and certainty. Um, but
3: science is always, whenever we could, I mean, our, our scientific method is to make a postulate, to design an experiment, to test the postulate, and then to continue that iterative loop. And what's going to be difficult here is that as we develop these models, to never validate them and to only use uh, you know, observations in a passive sense to validate them is going to be very uh, difficult, yeah. I think.
0: Models have been used to simulate the consequences of the Mount Pinatubo volcano. In 1991, a volcano erupted and put more than enough material in the stratosphere to more than offset the total warming from a doubling of CO2 had that been maintained in the stratosphere. And the models do a reasonably good job of simulating the results of that volcano. And so we have some confidence in the models, but also the models don't tell us that everything is wonderful. After that volcano, the Ganges River and the Amazon River had the lowest flow rates ever recorded in history. And so we know that these systems are not perfect. The Models suggests that, on average, there's potential for risk reduction, but it's also likely that, well, the average person might benefit that some people will get damaged.
1: If money were no object, uh, what would be done? Is money really an object, considering the circumstances? I, I you Want me to
0: start this one? I, I think there's a huge uh, range of things that could be done. For example... The amount of diffuse sunlight uh, coming down when, when there's lots of particles in the stratosphere is much larger. And after Mount Pinatubo, the forest actually grew more rapidly because light filtered down to the lower canopy where lower shrubby growth was promoted. We don't really know what would happen to forest ecosystems if this light character were changed over many years. And so we should start doing this ecological research now. We don't really know what the effect of these sustained particles would be on stratospheric chemistry, so we should do that research now. And so there's a huge range of things. We spoke about the need to get better models with better physical processes, better representations of clouds, better evaluation. So there's no shortage of things to be done on the environmental study side. I think when it gets more controversial is when you start doing research on the engineering side of how would I actually emplace these particles if that's what we were thinking of doing and and what kind of particles would be. And so maybe David would want to speak about what, if anything, you would want to do on the engineering
3: deployment yeah, what, side What are things? things that you
1: won't do now or do you think you shouldn't do?
3: Um, so whenever I, um, whenever I look at designing a new system, I like to try to understand what are the key variables, uh, what are the key uh, processes and physical uh, couplings that, that drive and determine the system performance. And again, I think we don't know enough today uh, to understand that, so I think it's prudent for the country to start uh, putting in the measurement systems to characterize, um, you know, the distribution of carbon and greenhouse gases. I think it's prudent to start looking at uh, the mechanisms by which uh, these couplings occur, and could you modify those? I think it's prudent to have the uh, Mount Pinatubo is a great example where nature did an experiment for you, so it released a large amount of SO2 into the atmosphere. And we had some instrumentation that could try to characterize that that enabled the modelers to actually look at it and validate their models. So are we prepared for the next Mount Punatubo to maximize the amount of information we can extract from that uh, nat- natural event to the benefit of mankind? And my guess is the answer is no, that we're not really – we don't have – so when we stopped above-ground nuclear testing in, in the 60s, uh, Lawrence Limore National Lab – put together a, um, I'll call it a tiger team, whose job was to be prepared to resume testing if the country ever needed to, above ground. But, and the way they did that was they gave them the job to go uh, do high-altitude astrophysics experiments. So they went out and built scientific instruments to measure high, uh, similar kind of phenomenology that occurs in the natural environment uh, but they built up all the instruments and tools, and they, and they practiced their trade, if you will. And so they were prepared in case something did happen to occur. So I think here in the same light, I, think we, uh, I don't think today we're prepared that if there is another natural event that we would get the maximum benefit in terms of the diagnostics and the information extraction. And I think that's something certainly we ought to be doing at a minimum level. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things like that that are smart, prudent things to do, that uh, raise our knowledge and understanding of the phenomenology and the different techniques and methods that might have uh, provide high leverage on that, uh, so
1: Alden from UC Davis Law School, do you have any qualms or concerns about that kind of research?
2: Uh, I have less concerns about that. I mean we're more taking advantage of experiments that are naturally occurring, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's Smart. a very different question from uh, actually activating uh, experiments
3: would you would you would you th- uh, so small scale experiments i mean you could we could draw a ruler here and say okay i 'm going to do a laboratory experiment i 'm going to release one molecule here and i 'm going to instrument the hell out of it and i 'm going to watch that uh, uh, the effects of that and that 's one scale, and my guess is the potential consequences are so small that that wouldn 't
2: well i, I think there 's two pieces to that right one is how do we define what's small-scale, right? Obviously, one molecule is not going to really affect anyone else. One life? So
3: we, well, so see. Now, so, now the, but, so now we know that you can't affect one life, right? So now let's back up from that. So one frog? Well,
2: slippery slope, right? I mean, how far well, along no, do No, we do get? that
3: today. We, you know, look, look at the makeup but, industry. But
0: this, this <laughs> is why it's really difficult to define what's small-scale. Mm-hmm. The... A lot of people say, oh, a, a relatively benign small-scale experiment is okay. I mean, there's similar things. You know, what if you say it's small-scale small is okay? If, you might say, okay, scientific whaling, taking one whale is okay, but what if you have hundreds of whaling boats each going out <laughs> and taking a whale? But, but
3: isn't it the risk-benefit that you have to look at, not just the, you know... Um, so you have to look at the potential benefits of doing the experiment and the potential damages, and then you have to make a decision based on that risk-benefit.
0: I just need to jump in and say one thing, which I'll get upset at myself if I don't say it through this. I spend a lot of my time studying the phenomenon of ocean acidification and looking at the effects of carbon dioxide in the ocean on coral reefs. And I'd just like to point out that that is a big threat to the marine environment and that none of these geoengineering schemes do anything about ocean acidification. And so while I think that these schemes might be able to reduce some of the risks associated with our carbon dioxide emissions there's no way that these schemes are going to eliminate all of these risks so they just buy some time i think it's possible that you might in the event of a catastrophe that that this would you know allow you to you know for society to continue functioning while you're you're either removing co2 from the atmosphere or at least stopping emitting CO2 from the atmosphere. But I don't like to think of this in terms of buying time, because if you say, oh, they're buying time, it lets people think, oh, that we don't need to work so hard on emissions reduction, and and I don't think – I wouldn't want people to walk away from that. The Royal Society did a focus group in preparing for their report, and they asked people, how much effort were you willing to put into emissions reduction – And then they told the people about various geoengineering options. And then at the end of the focus group, they asked people again, how much effort are you willing to put into emissions reduction? And after hearing about the geoengineering options, they were actually willing to put more effort into emissions reduction. Because they thought, oh, if these crazy scientists are thinking about these (laughs) radical, risky things, that's pretty scary. Maybe we should do something about our emissions. And so the assumption that these options will necessarily lead to increased emissions I don't think is right. I think if you take the threat of catastrophic climate change seriously, you want to do what you can to minimize that threat and then prepare some plans for what you might do if that threat
1: manifests itself. But let's talk about unilateral deployment. Is it possible that any small actor... uh, in the world could it decide to deploy these technologies and it would have a global impact? David?
3: I think Ken's example of Russia doing an experiment. I think China's example of what they did to improve the weather of Peking for the Olympics. It's already happening. It's already happening. Al, what do we do what, about with, it? But I think, the, the, again, I think they've done it with the con- not thinking there's a consequence. And, again, since we don't understand the full consequence of these kind of things, uh, they can do it from an, a position of naivete as opposed to understanding the consequence of their actions. So research takes that away. I think okay. it does. I think it narrows the... Al, how about unilateral deployment?
2: I think that's part of both the appeal and the risk, right, is that geoengineering could potentially be deployed by a single country. And so unlike emissions reduction, we don't have to get 200 countries to uh, agree on how much to reduce emissions. Uh, But there's a risk, right? And that unilateral deployment obviously is going to make some people more happy and unhappy than others uh, and could easily be be viewed as a hostile act. And uh, you could imagine uh, geoengineering being viewed and used as a weapon. And That's the whole history of of weather modification. Um, We have a treaty uh, that was put together in the 1970s in response to American efforts to use weather modification techniques uh, in the Vietnam War. And that treaty only governs uh, hostile and military use. Question is, well, what exactly is hostile use? Does geoengineering constitute that? That's a completely open question.
1: And then also have to ask the question about what if someone abrogates these treaties, what are the consequences? What's the cost of noncompliance?
2: Well, I think at some point the treaties, I wouldn't say they become irrelevant, but they become secondary, right? That uh, all these, if we look, for example, at the treaties that exist that we could stretch to apply to uh, geoengineering techniques, such as the Framework Convention or the Environmental Modification, uh, Environmental Mod Treaty, um, These treaties weren't really intended to, at least originally, intended to deal with geoengineering. Um, And if a country wanted to drop out of the treaty and say, well, we're not going to sign on to uh, whatever uh, protocol that addresses geoengineering, or they just drop out and decide, well, we're not going to be part of that, I think it becomes a a matter for the international community to uh, deal with. Um, Now, the norms that have been created over time, either through treaties or uh, informally, uh, hopefully, will help govern that, just as with nuclear weapons. Right? We have renegade countries, which, uh, you know, hopefully, pressure from the international community will help keep the behavior of those renegades under control. But in the same way, uh, the treaties play an important role in structuring uh, what happens. But uh, they're not; uh, they don't quite have the same force and enforcement behind them uh, as uh, as we think of domestic law.
1: Uh, uh, We're discussing geoengineering at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Al Lin is a professor at UC Davis School of Law. Ken Kaldir from Stanford? I, I think that
0: governance structures are very important, but I think there's a logic to the situation that will keep most countries, if not all countries, under control. And that is if anybody starts doing this, any bad weather event that happens anywhere in the world, any hurricane or drought will be blamed on whoever started toying with the climate system. And so I think a political leader would realize that they're going to have all kinds of international political problems if they started deploying this and that would
1: uh, But that's if they know, I mean, if we know that some bad guy somewhere did it, how are we going to know who's putting the stuff up? I think with a reasonable satellite observing system, you'd
0: know who's doing it. On the other hand, I think, if, let's say you had international treaties in place, and let's say you were in India, and you were, again, at risk of famine or some other catastrophic situation, and you were the, the leader of the country, and you thought by doing this, you could save y- your population, that I think that no international regulations would prevent somebody from doing it. And so I think we're in a situation where, under normal times, I think the, the, the normal political feedbacks would prevent a leader from doing it, but in a time of crisis, I don't think a governance structure will stop them. Nevertheless, I think governance structures are important.
1: And we've talked here today a little bit about science and limitations and not getting into values, uh, putting uh, the limitations of international treaties and and frameworks. Uh, So what it comes down to is the political process, political structures, and we live in an era where people seem to have very little confidence in Washington steering anything, let alone steering a hurricane. So, David, where's this going to land? Do we have confidence in the political structures?
3: Um, I think uh, they, take, uh, they have a timescale of their own. Uh, I think uh, there, uh, for things that do have a compelling motivation, uh, the world usually does get it right eventually. Um, after trying everything else? Uh, th- that was a famous quote yeah, once. I yeah. think America does seem to get it right after it tries everything else. Uh, Winston Churchill, if I remember correctly. Um, so, yeah, I think that's right. I think it is uh, something that we will eventually get it right. Um, and I think the world will eventually get it right, because I think it has to.
1: But this is really high stakes, and, 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 uh, Al, do we have time to experiment? Will the political structures uh, fill in the gap between science and and law?
2: Well, I don't think we have a choice but to rely on the political structures. Um, But I think we do have the time to uh, begin working on developing these norms, which ultimately will uh, be very important, uh, particularly in these emergency situations where uh, countries will be tempted to uh, sort of defy uh, sort of the, the, the whatever governing treaties uh, might be out there.
1: So we're stuck with politics, whether we like it or not?
2: I think we have politics as us.
1: Does the precautionary principle apply in these situations?
2: Well, I think the precautionary principle is interesting, right, because uh, essentially the principle calls for Uh, in situations of uncertainty uh, that uncertainty should not prevent uh, actions to deal with uh, risk or uncertainty. Uh, Well, I think the conventional view with respect to geoengineering is that well, there's so much uncertainty and risk surrounding geoengineering that the precautionary principle suggests that well, we ought not do it. Um, But you can imagine a, a contrary view which is that Well, suppose we do some of this research, and over time we can narrow down perhaps some of the risks and uncertainties. Uh, Presumably there still will be some. Um, One can imagine the argument being made that, well, uh, maybe the precautionary principle requires us to take action, um, because uh, the risks of not doing anything or continuing with the status quo, trying to just go through emissions reduction, uh, is so great, and we're facing a potential calamity. Uh, maybe the precautionary thing to do would be to do some uh, geoengineering. So I think the precautionary principle certainly uh, is relevant, but how it plays out uh, is uh, a little unclear.
1: Any thoughts? Um, Question from the audience. What about the less risky capture of CO2 along with sequestration? There's a whole other class of uh, activities known as geoengineering. We haven't talked to you a lot. So let's talk with the carbon, uh, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere.
0: There are many different options for sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The simplest one is to grow a tree and most people would think that's very benign and something we should probably do. Uh, The I guess the other end of that spectrum are industrialized facilities to use chemical engineering approaches to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And these approaches seem technically feasible, but costly, And I think if the cost can be brought down enough, uh, that it's something we should do. F- for myself, I would be willing to pay for this today. It's thought that with current technology, that it would cost about two dollars to remove the carbon dioxide emitted by burning each gallon of gasoline. And I'd be willing to spend $2 a gallon more to make a carbon-neutral car, but uh, How many
1: people here would pay $2 a gallon more? You? Half? Half? It's the San Francisco it's a people, crowd. It's the San Francisco crowd, yeah. Maybe, <laughs> do you own cars? Okay. Um, so th- there's a cost, but
0: would that cost come
1: down with scale? Uh,
0: there are some thermodynamic limits, so th- there's perhaps a factor of several-fold reductions in costs that are theoretically possible. But the basic uh, engineering processes are taken from the paper and pulp industry, and and then there are thermodynamic limits associated with compressing carbon dioxide. So I'm skeptical that the cost can get very much lower. From
3: an engineering perspective, any time you do this analysis, we've looked at, Removing debris from space, from satellites running to each other, and they break up and they, they spread debris around the orbit, and then that creates a hazard uh, for our space station. It could be a life-threatening hazard for other satellites. It could limit, you know, terminate the life of, this, of the satellite. And whenever you do the calculation about the cost of going to try to remove the debris, what you find the the best answer is go grab the satellite before it has the collision, and take the dead satellites and deorbit them with intent meaning quickly and in a controlled way because that's the highest leverage value position before it breaks up. And I think in carbon in the same way is go grab it at the source, you know, so uh, make clean coal if possible or switch to natural gas and clean that as much as possible and don't wait – to let it get out and then try to sweep it The best it carbon
1: is the carbon that's never released. We have right. some questions here. My it's mother about... used to
3: say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of yeah, cure, yeah, so I think that's, right. that's the same thing applies we'll here.
1: Okay. So we have a question about carbon capture and sequestration. A little bit off topic, but is, would that be a better use of resources?
0: It's thought that carbon capture from a power plant might be, say, one-sixth the cost of capturing the same carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in an industrialized facility. And, and so, you know, if you had to spend a dollar on removing carbon from the atmosphere, the you're better source. off getting it from the, from the smokestack gas. There's a, the concentration of carbon dioxide in a smokestack is typically over 10%, whereas the concentration in the atmosphere is closer to 0.04%. So it's easier to get it out of the more concentrated gas.
1: So keep the sulfur in, take the carbon out.
0: <laughs> I, I won't go there. The sulfur, the sulfur is a health hazard, you will, and it's an acid rain problem. Yeah, so you, you, you want to clean up out. the sulfur emissions for health reasons. But
3: maybe you want to do it in a controlled fashion. Maybe you want to think about how do you uh, pull the main sulfur out but have just enough at the right altitude to mitigate, or how do you mitigate it over time? and things like that. So, There's
1: another class of activities, uh, mirrors, bubbles in space. There's all sorts of other things that are, don't involve sulfur dioxide. How viable are those? We unaffordable.
3: Not affordable? I'm not affordable.
0: You would need to build a square kilometer of satellite every half hour or so just to keep up with the rate of greenhouse gas increase in the atmosphere. So those are pretty much science fiction, futuristic ideas. There is the idea of whitening clouds over the ocean, by making a fine spray of seawater. And that would only work in certain locations, but it appears feasible.
1: Ken Caldeira is a scientist at the Carnegie Institution at Stanford. We are talking about climate change and geoengineering at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, David Whalen, we're talking about uh, mitigation. What is Boeing doing uh, outside of its own research areas? What is Boeing doing? If the real solution is reducing carbon emissions, what's Boeing doing on that regard?
3: So we we have... um First, uh, we were approached by uh, Virgin Atlantic. Uh, Could we um, we fly biofuels and reduce the carbon footprint of our airplanes? And so back uh, five years ago, we began a program to start looking at uh, can we run the planes on a, a mix, 50-50 mixture of biofuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're uh, well along that path. We've validated it on uh, – we're working with you know, several airlines, a Continental Airlines, Virgin Atlantic.
1: So when will we be able to – when will they be on the market?
3: Uh, it really is a matter of the – so we're proving that the airplanes are capable of operating safely on a fix, 50-50 mixture of fuel, uh, fuel mix of diesel – or JP8 and biofuels. And we're pretty agnostic. We're trying to qualify all the different kinds of biofuels that the different uh, uh, people have come up with. Uh, So really it is a matter of the infrastructure. So when uh, when will they get large-scale deployment of... Distribution and production of biofuels, uh, and then we can form safe uh, mixes of the two and fly the airplane on that. Could you and, fly the planes today? Um, some planes have oh, flown. We, short flights. Yeah, we've actually done it. We've done it for both the military. Uh, matter of fact, the U.S. Navy plans to operate an, an entire carrier task force on a 50-50 blend of uh, biofuels and uh, jet fuel. So we're well on our way to. Be, we, we think there's nothing stopping us from being able to do that. So we'll be able to reduce the long-term reduce the emissions from airplanes in half. And then the fact is a lot of the pollution from planes comes from older planes. And so as we replace the planes with new, more efficient airplanes, our new 787 will be 20 percent more efficient. So as we improve the efficiency of the airplane and uh, go to a mixture of biofuels, uh, we think we can actually keep that well under control. What
1: has Boeing done in a policy context to support putting a price on carbon outside of your own R&D and products? What have you done in the policy realm?
3: Right I don't. I don't I'm, not, I'm the chief scientist, and I don't really know the answer to that. Um, my guess is we support the idea of uh, trying to validate biofuels for airplanes, and we're, we think that's a uh, – we're proving the technology to be able to do that. So we're enabling the world to be able to move in that direction. Uh, if there is the infrastructure support, today there's not enough biofuel that's produced to really. Uh, matter of fact, we're going through quite a bit to get enough fuel produced for the Navy to operate their experiment in 2015. So we're trying to work with uh, some of the biofuel producers, you know, the oil, large oil companies and in, the, in their partnerships and uh, the JVs to produce biofuels. So, uh,
1: say more about the military experiment, uh, uh, a test in two- fift- 2015.
3: So my understanding is the uh, Chief of Naval Operations set that as a challenge for the. Uh, the Navy, to operate a carrier task force, which means a carrier uh, and all the airplanes to operate on a a mixture of biofuel. Um, And so it was trying to show that the military is trying to move along. There was a presidential directive that the military needs to start worrying about its carbon footprint. Uh, They included the impacts of climate change on their current QDR, their Quadrennial Defense Review, which looks at the long-term planning for the Department of Defense. And so they're starting to take steps to try to... um, Manage their both their energy consumption and their carbon footprints.
1: We're getting close here to the end. Uh, let's wrap up by asking each of you what is to summarize. Um, what's most promising and most worrisome about uh, geoengineering? Alan, you go first.
2: Hmm. Well, I think what's promising to me is the variety of ideas that I've seen in the literature. Uh, it reminds me of high school chemistry, where all these basic concepts are being at least looked into right, as possibilities and so I don't, I don't think there's a shortage of creativity uh, even though admittedly some of these ideas may seem far-fetched um, you know what's worrisome to me uh, is uh, I think a general lack of, uh, of, of of I think it goes back to kind of situating this in, the, in their overall picture is that uh, We've made so little progress in reducing emissions, and geoengineering can so easily be uh, situated as uh, an easy out. And, uh, you know, I think our discussion here has indicated that uh, we don't know enough about these uh, to uh, put them into play, Uh, and uh, they all carry their own uh, risks and uh, problems.
1: Ken Caldera?
0: I think geoengineering options have the potential to greatly reduce suffering and environmental damage. On the other hand, they have the potential to contribute to really screwing up the planet. And so I I think that uh, there's a really wide spectrum, but I think as long as there is potential, that we need to do more to learn about that potential. But I'm not convinced that these things can really reduce risk, but they might
3: be able to.
1: So we're really playing with fire. Uh, David Whalen from Boeing?
3: Um, two things. I, I think it's, it's reassuring to know that nature does have a way to cool the planet if it, uh, in ways like emitting uh, SO2 from volcanoes. Um, so that proves that there is a there there. Um, I think the consequences and the complexities of the environment make it such that we don't know all the ramifications, so it does make it something uh, the instrument of last resort. I think our knowledge state is uh, very uh, immature on all the different ways that we might be able to do this, and I think we need to start thinking that through and moving down that path. And I think the longer we wait, the the more risk we take that if the climate does keep rising. You know, there's a lot of inertia in the system. There's a lot of societal pressures that will make it very difficult to come to agreements to manage this. And as the temperatures rise, um, what are we going to do? And do we have any um, uh, hedge bets that might uh, uh, save us, if you will? So I, th- I think it's worth investigating.
1: Do you think you'll see deployment in our lifetime?
3: Right, let me say I hope not. Al?
2: I would agree. I
3: hope
2: not. I hope
1: not. I I I agree. Okay. (laughs) Um, We've been listening to a panel of experts on geoengineering at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. We've heard from David Whelan, chief scientist of Boeing Integrated Defense Systems, Al Lin, professor at UC Davis School of Law, and Ken Caldera from the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is the end of this program of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club.